0: Chapter 12, Part 1. Things Fall Apart. April 2004. Of The U.S. Army in the Iraq War, Volume 1. By U.S. Army Operation Iraqi Freedom Study Group. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Adam Cable. Chapter 12, Part 1. Things Fall Apart. April 2004. Chapter 12. Things Fall Apart April 2004 As the transition month of March 2004 came to a close and the new units that had arrived for the second rotation of Operation Iraqi Freedom began to settle into their areas of operations, coalition leaders in Iraq viewed the situation with cautious optimism. Lt. Gen. Ricardo Sanchez and Combined Joint Task Force 7, or CJTF-7, believed daily affairs had settled into a type of normality in which the coalition was progressing toward its campaign goals, albeit at a slower pace than Sanchez would have preferred. Insurgent groups continued to mount harassing attacks against coalition forces, especially in the northern and western provinces, but the fighting was usually brief and localized. This relative tranquility was shattered in April 2004, when Iraq exploded with mass uprisings throughout the country, forcing CJTF-7 to fight a two-front war against broad Sunni and Shia insurgencies. With Sunni and Shia guerrilla leaders coordinating their rebellions in an effort to drive the coalition from Iraq, only the timely intervention of a departing U.S. division rescued the coalition from a strategic defeat. The uprising permanently changed the character of the conflict and set in motion political dynamics that broadened the war far beyond coalition leaders' expectations. An Unexpected Two-Front War Page 281 Outbreak in Fallujah The trouble began in Fallujah, which by early 2004 had become an insurgent stronghold and the most dangerous city in Iraq. Even before the invasion of Iraq, Fallujah was religiously conservative. Known as the City of a Hundred Mosques, it was home to both Sheikh Abdullah Janabi, leader of the insurgent Mujahideen Shura Council, and Harith al-Dari, chairman of the pro-insurgent Association of Muslim Scholars. In the months after Saddam Hussein's fall, the lack of border security allowed thousands of foreign fighters to enter Anbar from Syria and Jordan and make their way east through the Euphrates River Valley. The situation had not been helped by the haphazard rotation of coalition units through the city in the months after the invasion, which resulted in no fewer than six different units having responsibility for the town during the first year of the war. Ominous signs appeared just after the new year. On January 2, 2005, insurgents shot down an OH-58 Kiowa helicopter over the city. Later the same day, 1st Battalion, 505th Parachute Infantry Regiment, or PIR, with special operations support, discovered 17 armed improvised explosive devices, or IEDs, and four dump trucks worth of explosives and weapons in a Fallujah market. Shortly after the raid, insurgent fire brought down a UH UH-60 Black Hawk medevac, killing nine U.S. soldiers. Two other helicopters were downed in quick succession. On February 12th, during a visit by the U.S. Central Command, or CENTCOM, commander, insurgents engaged General John Abizade and Major General Charles Swanick's convoy with rocket propelled grenades, or RPG, and small arms fire as it approached the Iraqi Civil Defense Corps, or ICDC, building in the city. Two days later, militants conducted bold, simultaneous daylight assaults on three Iraqi police stations, the ICDC base, and the mayor's office freeing 20 insurgent prisoners while killing 17 lightly armed police officers. Two of the dead attackers were Lebanese, highlighting the presence of foreign fighters in the city. During the march handover of Fallujah from the 82nd Airborne Division to 1st Marine Expeditionary Force, or 1st MEF, a mortar attack on the mayor's office during a city council meeting killed two Iraqi civilians while wounding at least 19 soldiers and marines. On March 31st, Sunni militants ambushed a Blackwater supply convoy that took a wrong turn into a Fallujah neighborhood, killing all four of the convoy's Blackwater contractor guards. The militants mutilated the corpses, dragged them through the streets, and hung their burning remains from Fallujah's iconic iron bridge over the Euphrates River. Captured on video, the grisly scene was viewed worldwide. From Baghdad, Sanchez viewed the Blackwater incident as a tactical issue for the marines in Multinational Force West, or MNFW, to handle, as CJTF-7 was focused on what he considered the more significant threat from Moqtada Sadr, a view with which MNFW leaders agreed. One marine assessment held that the contractors had been killed by Albu Isa tribesmen, the same tribe reportedly responsible for shooting down a coalition helicopter after its Sheikh's arrest the previous September. Lieutenant General James Conway, the first MEF commander, and Major General James Mattis, the first Marine Division commander, both recommended against a large-scale operational response to the Fallujah incident. The first Marine Division had taken over from the 82nd Airborne Division just two weeks earlier, and the Marine commanders wanted time to develop a better understanding of Fallujah's urban terrain before launching operations. In any case, Conway and Mattis recommended a targeted approach using improved intelligence to find the perpetrators of the 31st of March killings, rather than an offensive against the entire city. After hurried conferences with the Marine leadership, Sanchez and Abizaid supported the Tactical Commanders' Council against immediate action and brought those recommendations to Secretary of Defense or SecDef Donald Rumsfeld and the National Security Council principals. In meetings in Washington on April 1st, Abizade argued, quote, The reality in Fallujah is that the incident is militarily insignificant, but acknowledged that repeated play on the media has made the insurgents appear strong and the U.S. weak. End quote. Abizade quickly realized that U.S. leaders wanted a stronger response than Abizade and Sanchez had recommended. The prevailing mood in Washington was, quote, This ain't Mogadishu. We're not walking away. End quote. Abizade observed. Reflecting that mood, Rumsfeld made clear in separate meetings with CJTF-7 that, quote, we must do more than get the perpetrators. This is a good opportunity to push the Sunnis on the Iraqi Governing Council to step forward and condemn this attack. We will remember those who do not. It is time to choose. You are with us or against us. End quote with u s leaders having disapproved the recommendations of their tactical commanders on april third sanchez ordered mnfw to begin operation vigilant resolve to eliminate the insurgent safe haven in Fallujah and capture those responsible for the blackwater killings when informed of the decision a frustrated mattis asked conway to provide the order in writing and to do everything possible to prevent the operation from being halted before the city had been cleared with just two marine battalions in the Fallujah area MNFW needed additional forces to clear the city of 250,000 people. While Mattis ordered his units already near Fallujah to form a cordon around the city, Conway repositioned two battalions from western Anbar to join in an assault on the city that would begin three days later on April 6th. As events transpired, these would be the only coalition forces sent to assist in Fallujah, as the country was about to explode in a general insurrection. THE Soderist Uprising As Sanchez had indicated to his chain of command, CJTF-7's principal concern entering the spring of 2004 was Muqtada Sadr and his militant followers. This judgment was shared by most U.S. leaders in Washington, who regarded the Sadrists as the most significant threat to the planned transfer of sovereignty to an interim Iraqi government in June. Sadr's Jaish al-Mahdi militia was well-entrenched in the Shia-majority South by the spring of 2004, having infiltrated local police and government, established Sharia courts, and formed smuggling and kidnapping rings. Sanchez believed himself under pressure from senior U.S. leaders to ensure the timely transfer of sovereignty in order to give the U.S. administration a political success ahead of the November 2004 presidential election. As a result, cjtf seven had made plans to destroy sadr's organization but awaited solid intelligence and the right opportunity to do so in view of the high risk of moving against Sodder, rumsfeld had reserved for himself the authority to order the plan's execution the opportunity to move against the sadrists seemed to present itself in late march when Sodder's newspaper al Hausa published an article comparing the coalition provisional authority or cpa and ambassador l paul bremer to Saddam. In response, Bremer ordered CPA officials to close the newspaper, which had been inciting violence against the coalition effectively for several months. On March 28, coalition troops chained shut the newspaper's office doors, prompting a protest by nearly 20,000 angry solderists who marched on the green zone in the days immediately following the closure. A small contingent of U.S. soldiers guarding the Green Zone perimeter, intimidated by the size of the protest and threatened by thrown rocks and other objects, opened fire and killed two Iraqis, further inflaming tensions. Rather than attempt to de-escalate the situation with Sadr, Bremer and the coalition took steps that inadvertently led to the opening of a second front. In a pre-dawn raid on April 3rd, the same day Sanchez ordered MNFW to launch its operation against Fallujah, Navy SEALs from the Combined Joint Special Operations Task Force, or CJSOTF, arrested Mustafa al Yakubi, one of Sadr's deputies and a suspect in the murder of Ayatollah Abdul-Majid al-Khoi. As with all other operations against Sadr's inner circle, the raid required an execution order from Rumsfeld. While the coalition treated Yacoubi as any other detainee, televised images of Yacoubi in an orange prison outfit matching the detainee uniforms at Guantanamo Bay, Cuba, incensed many Sadr supporters who perceived the arrest as a direct challenge to their power in southern Iraq. Bremer and his staff had assumed the mission could be conducted without an impact on the upcoming battle in Fallujah. But the arrest of Yacoubi, coupled with the closing of al-Hausa and the shooting of Sadrist all on the eve of the Shia religious pilgrimage and commemoration of Arba'in, prompted a violent response from Sadr's forces. The day after Yakubi's arrest, April 4th, Sadr's Jaish al-Mahdi launched a coordinated offensive against coalition troops across central and southern Iraq. The first blow fell in Baghdad, where Major General Peter Corelli's 1st Cavalry Division was in the process of relieving Major General Martin Dempsey's 1st Armored Division. Sadr City, with more than two million Shia residents, was an overcrowded maze of slums in an area of just thirteen kilometers, making it one of the most densely populated areas in the world. By comparison, Sodder City's population exceeded that of Manhattan, but was crammed into a third of the space. The 1st Cavalry Division was ill-equipped for the Sadrists' offensive in this dense urban terrain. Forced to leave much of its armored forces home at Fort Hood despite Corelli's protests, the 1st Cavalry Division had dragooned most of its tank, mechanized infantry, engineer, and artillery units into motorized infantry equipped with armored high-mobility multipurpose wheeled vehicles, or HMMWV, to conduct daily operations and patrols. Corelli and the 1st Cavalry Division had come to Iraq prepared to carry out stability operations that would focus on basic services and living conditions for the Iraqi population as the best way to improve security conditions, the same approach U.S. units had employed in Haiti. To explain his strategy as simply as possible, Corelli used the acronym SWET, which stood for Sewer, Water, Electricity, and Trash, the sectors of the Iraqi infrastructure that were the principal focus of this effort. It was for this reason that a platoon of the 1st Brigade 1st Cavalry Division was escorting contracted sewage vacuum trucks through Sadr City on April 4, 2004, when it was ambushed and nearly overrun by scores of Jaish al-Mahdi fighters. Barricading the streets with stoves, air conditioners, and other debris, the Sadrist fighters trapped the patrol's wheeled vehicles inside Sadr City, requiring tank-led reinforcements to crash through the obstacles and escort the beleaguered troops to safety. The change in the operating environment that occurred on April 4th was dramatic. The previous unit in Sadr City, the 2nd Armored Cavalry Regiment, had lost just one soldier during its nine-month tenure there. On April 4th, eight soldiers from 1st Brigade 1st Cavalry Division were killed or wounded from a single ambushed patrol, after which the brigade fought intense battles against Jesh al-Mahdi for 80 consecutive days. The fighting became so fierce that by the morning of April 6th, the 1st Armored Division already had reported killing 136 Sadarist militiamen in Baghdad. By April 12th, that number had reached 247, nearly double the number of insurgents reported killed in all of MNFW. The situation changed beyond Baghdad as well. Sadarist uprisings quickly spread through the southern cities, including Basra, Amara, Kut, and Karbala, where angry protests on April 4th in front of coalition government buildings turned violent overnight. Within hours of the Sadr city outbreak, Multinational Division Baghdad, or MNDB, Multinational Division Central South, or MNDCS, and Multinational Division Southeast, or MNDSE, all faced an unexpected crisis, forcing them to defend virtually every coalition outpost in the south against Sadrist attackers. THE ASSAULT ON Fallujah. As the multinational divisions in Baghdad and the South scrambled to repel the Sadrist attacks, Multinational Force West, or MNFW, began its attack on Fallujah. The Marines spent 48 hours preparing to assault Fallujah by establishing a series of checkpoints in a loose cordon around the city. The shortage of forces in the Marine cordon allowed some senior insurgents to escape the city and flee to Haditha, which proved to be a favored insurgent staging area due to its proximity to Lake Tartar and its central location within Anbar. Given the hastiness of the operation, only two battalions from Regimental Combat Team 1, 2nd Battalion 1st Marines and 1st Battalion 5th Marines, were available for the actual assault, and they moved into positions near the city while the 1st Reconnaissance Battalion screened to the south. On April 6th, 1st MEF commenced Operation Vigilant Resolve the Marine battalions began moving into Fallujah's neighborhood, where they quickly became engaged in bitter house-to-house fighting. They did so without significant armor support. Because of the haste to launch the operation and the lack of other available forces, only 10 M1 Abrams tanks were present in the attacking forces. Opposing the Marines were 500 to 1,000 insurgent fighters from disparate groups that could be grouped roughly into three categories— former regime elements and Hizb al Auda, local Islamist groups allied with foreign fighters, and Abu Musab al-Zarqawi's Tawid wal-Jihad. While no single individual controlled the various Fallujah resistance groups, Sheikh Abdullah Janabi was able to coordinate most of their efforts. During the battle, mosques served as insurgent command and control centers, with the Al-Hadra Mosque serving as the principal headquarters for Janabi and his allies. The 2nd Battalion, 1st Marines, paired with the Iraqi 36th Commando Battalion and its Special Operations Advisors, moved into the northwest part of the city, while the 1st Battalion, 5th Marines, attacked from the west in an attempted pincer movement. Empty vehicles blocked intersections and alleyways, making it difficult for Coalition armor to support the infantry forces. But as Marine units from elsewhere in MNFW began concentrating on Fallujah, the balance of combat power shifted, and the Marines began to make headway. On the second day of the attack, Colonel John Tulin, the RCT-1 commander, received a third infantry battalion. A fourth infantry battalion arrived two days later. As the operation proceeded, most of the Iraqi soldiers sent to participate in the attack refused to fight. Many of the troops, only having received a few weeks of rudimentary training, simply were not ready for the rigors of combat. Others, having joined the New Iraqi Army, or ICDC, to protect Iraq against external attack, felt they had been misled when they were ordered to Fallujah. In a scenario replayed across the country in April, many refused orders or just deserted, rather than fight fellow Iraqis. In a few cases, they defected to the insurgents. Mattis told his superiors, quote, Reporting and experience has indicated that all Iraqi civil security organizations, police, Iraqi Civil Defense Corps, and Iraqi Border Force are generally riddled with corruption, a lack of will, and are widely infiltrated by anti-coalition forces, adding that, in one case, we have reporting that an entire unit located in Fallujah has deserted and gone over to the insurgent side. End quote. The major exception to the collapse of Iraqi security forces at Fallujah was the 36th Commando Battalion, which had been trained and equipped by the CJSOTF. Paired with embedded Special Forces advisors, the 36th Commando Battalion became the sole Iraqi unit to fight effectively in Fallujah, where it was rushed from one engagement to another throughout the city, despite the death of its battalion commander as he led an assault. The Conflagration Spreads As MNFW repositioned its forces to support operations in Fallujah, insurgents elsewhere in Anbar took the opportunity to go on the offensive, most likely to reduce pressure from Fallujah and tie down potential coalition reinforcements. On April 6, Ramadi exploded in fighting and fell to Sunni insurgents, while across Anbar, insurgent ambushes tied up marine units and disrupted their movement. In Ramadi, the thinly-stretched 2nd Battalion 4th Marines lost 12 marines on the first day of fighting and resorted to putting uniforms on cardboard cutouts in guard posts to conceal their shortage of combat power. On the same day, the Kuseba police force defected en masse to the insurgency and began fighting coalition forces that previously had been helping organize and train them. Pitched battles in the town were marked by massed attacks of more than 100 insurgents. The situation in Ramadi and Kuseba was being replicated everywhere as the coalition suffered what 3rd Corps Commander Lt. Gen. Thomas Metz labeled a, quote, strategic surprise, end quote, throughout Iraq. The trapped platoon in Sadr City was only one of hundreds of engagements fought on April 4th and 5th allied units that had come to iraq expecting to contribute to a stability and support operation similar to a united nations or u n or north atlantic treaty organization or nato mission in the balkans were unprepared to face the insurgent onslaught in najaf iraqi security forces virtually disappeared overnight as jaish al-mahdi fighters besieged the cpa compound in the city in nasiriyah the Italian CPA representative attempted to strike deals with Sodorist leaders to avoid fighting, but by April 5th, Sauterist fighters ignored the agreements and seized territory and buildings. The Italian contingent in Nasseria partially withdrew under heavy fire until MNDSE British commander Major General Andrew Stewart pressed the Italian commander to retake the city, lest Stewart send a British brigade to do the job himself. The city of Kut fell wholesale, with Jaysh al-Mahdi members overrunning the television and radio stations, Iraqi government buildings, and police stations as the Ukrainian military commander garrisoned his vehicles and refused to participate in the fighting. On the night of April fifth, a U.S. AC-130 Spectre gunship narrowly repelled a solderist assault on the CPA office in Kut, but the CPA abandoned the office the following day when the Ukrainian contingent assigned to defend it withdrew to Camp Delta outside the city. Without the stiff defense provided by military contractors from a company named Triple Canopy, the CPA compound likely would have been overrun. While some Allied forces fought fiercely, most were overwhelmed by the unexpected spasm of violence. Constrained by each country's national caveats and limitations on their operations, many allied military commanders on the ground in MNDCS refused to act against the uprising, revealing a significant flaw in the coalition's disposition of forces. The territory where the Sauterist insurgency metastasized had been assigned to the coalition forces least equipped and least willing to deal with the problem. The carving out of the MNDCS area of responsibility thus had created an operational level seam for the Shia insurgency to exploit. Meanwhile, as the fighting raged in Sadr city, the south, and Fallujah, other parts of the country erupted in rebellion in what increasingly appeared to be a coordinated insurgent offensive. In the northern city of Samara, a former Saddamist stronghold with a Sunni population of 200,000 and a major Shia shrine, Sunni insurgents overran the town as local Iraqi security units collapsed. The U.S. battalion responsible for the city had arrived just weeks earlier when Major General John Batiste's 1st Infantry Division took over Multinational Division North Central, or MNDNC, from Major General Raymond Odierno's 4th Infantry Division in March. As the Iraqi forces melted away, the battalion lost awareness of what was going on in Samarra, a fact compounded by the placement of its garrison on the major highway eight kilometers outside the city. The base, quote, was a good location to monitor the main supply route, but a poor location to monitor Samara, end quote, one officer recalled, and it forced the battalion to commute into the city with, quote, only one way in and one way out of town, end quote. In Samarra, at least, the CJTF-7 policy of moving units out of Iraqi cities ultimately had ceded territory to the enemy. It would take a week for coalition troops to fight their way back into the city, retaking it on April 11th. On April 7th, the fighting spread farther north to the normally quiet Sunni city of Hawija, a Saddamist stronghold of 70,000 people 64 kilometers southwest of Kirkuk. Hawija was the responsibility of a light infantry battalion from 2nd Brigade, 25th Infantry Division, and as in Samara, the coalition troops were based outside the city in keeping with CJTF-7's strategy. Beset by hundreds of gunmen, the U.S. battalion repelled multiple assaults, eventually killing 35 attackers and capturing another 58. When the fighting was over, the coalition troops discovered the insurgents had planned to seize government buildings and Iraqi security forces' bases and use their capture for propaganda. Meanwhile, on April eighth, the insurrection spilled into Diyala province northeast of Baghdad, where major fighting broke out in the provincial capital of Bakuba, as well as in Muktadiya and Kalis. Bakuba fell to insurgents, requiring a U.S. tank battalion, engineer battalion, and artillery battalion all pressed into service as infantry to retake the city. Guidance from Washington In Washington, U.S. leaders considered how to manage the expanding crisis. Gathering on April 7th, the National Security Council principles were nearly unanimous in their determination to respond aggressively against the Sadrists, even as the attack against Fallujah continued. As Secretary of State Colin Powell saw it, it was time to, quote, smash somebody's ass quickly, end quote. Then President George W. Bush concurred judging that the Shia uprising was a, quote, manhood test, end quote, for Muqtada Sadr, in which the coalition could not afford to let the young Shia leader gain the upper hand. The National Security Council's conclusion was clear. An urgent counterattack against the Sadrist movement was needed. On the same day the National Security Council met, coalition officials in Baghdad declared Jaish al-Mahdi, quote, a hostile force, end quote a legal designation that allowed coalition forces to use deadly force against members of the organization even if they were not carrying out a hostile act or exhibiting hostile intent against coalition forces. Such a declaration, used previously against Saddam's military before it disintegrated, contrasted significantly with the rules of engagement that applied to the remainder of the country. It meant that J.A.M. fighters could be killed under nearly any condition other than surrendering. Meanwhile, U.S. leaders approved a plan to turn around the homeward-bound 1st Armored Division and task it with preparing a division-level attack against the Sadrists. Cutting off the coalition supply routes With coalition units fully engaged in fighting throughout central and southern Iraq, both Shia and Sunni rebels appeared to realize they had seized the initiative and they next sought to isolate the coalition units scrambling to mount a counterattack. On April 8th, insurgents attacked the main coalition supply routes running south from Baghdad, threatening to cut off the coalition divisions from their main logistics hub in Kuwait. Before April, the numerous coalition supply convoys had been harassed only sporadically, and most often by attackers using a single IED. In April, by contrast, Sunni and Shia insurgents mounted numerous complex attacks in which groups of 50 to 100 fighters attacked convoys with direct fire, IEDs, and RPGs. Insurgents with apparent military skills placed obstacles and mines on main supply routes to canalize convoys into more constricted areas where militants waited to ambush them. Even more damaging were insurgent attacks against vital bridges. Insurgents destroyed 11 bridges during April. And along Highway 1, the main north-south highway that coalition troops knew as Main Supply Route Tampa, insurgents downed five bridges in one day. Because only a limited number of bridges could support the passage of heavy armored vehicles over the twisting Tigris River, these attacks forced coalition units to take circuitous detours, often along dangerous canalized roads. The attackers also destroyed highway overpasses, which blocked wheeled vehicle patrols and logistics convoys, halting them in ambush kill zones. Insurgents hit the coalition's logistics convoys hard. In a 10-day period along Route Tampa, attackers destroyed 88 trucks, killing 33 U.S. soldiers and capturing one. When the 1st Cavalry Division's normal southern route was cut, A U.S. convoy bringing sorely needed fuel tankers and supply trucks from Balad to the division's bases in Baghdad met with disaster on April 9th on the outskirts of Baghdad. Unfamiliar with the route and equipped with unarmored vehicles, the convoy and its escort, the 724th Transportation Company, were ambushed near Abu Ghraib by what were most likely former Iraqi soldiers who had joined Jaish al-Islami. The insurgents destroyed 18 of the convoy's 26 vehicles and almost all of its fuel and supplies. Lacking proper communications equipment, the 724th Transportation Company was unable to call for help, and the first inkling nearby friendly units had of the convoy's plight was multiple columns of black smoke on the horizon. Casualties stood at 7 killed, 12 wounded, and 4 missing, with Specialist Keith Maupin and Contractor Keith Hamill taken hostage. Hamel later escaped, but Maupin's captors killed him, and his remains were found in 2008. The attacks compounded CJTF 7's already fragile, just in time logistics practices, in which units inside Iraq maintained few parts and supplies, relying instead upon on demand deliveries from the Central Supply Hub in Kuwait, a cost savings method the Army had adopted during the drawdown of the 1990s. In Iraq, the insurgent offensive at April 2004 proved fatal to a just-in-time system that was already vulnerable to transportation disruptions an austere communication network and the frequent turbulence of unit moves and task organization changes. Locked in exhausting battles with both Shia and Sunni insurgents, the coalition was using fuel and ammunition at an unprecedented rate. This, coupled with disruptive attacks on convoys and supply routes, nearly resulted in a theater-wide logistics meltdown. On several bases, including the CPA headquarters in Baghdad, food supplies began to run out, and MNCI Commander Metz watched his entire corps go quote, amber and black on fuel and ammunition, quote. Instead of seeing supplies arriving just in time, units often found they had to do without. After the Battles of April, many units created their own bootleg supply stockages to guard against future crises. The attacks against the coalition lines of communications were a clear sign that the Iraqi insurgent groups were coordinating among themselves at an operational level. They were doing so in support of two larger objectives, to block the coalition from reinforcing the southern provinces where the Sadrist uprising was in full swing, and to starve the coalition logistically during a period of an extremely high operational tempo. The insurgent attacks were not carried out randomly, but rather were precise and coordinated. Most of the bridges targeted were those capable of carrying high-tonnage armored vehicles, and destroying them required reconnaissance and demolition experience. These operational-level activities were not the work of a single hierarchical insurgent command center, but reflected operational-level collaboration among various insurgent groups that could quickly share lessons learned and information on the routes coalition forces used. In other cases, opportunistic insurgent groups realized what was happening nationwide and took local advantage. In either case, the result was the same. The loosely defined insurgency had reacted to coalition action with decisive, operational-level effects. The Fallujah Ceasefire Back in Fallujah, Operation Vigilant Resolve was colliding with regional politics. Within days of the Marines' attack, high levels of collateral damage were seized upon by Arab media outlets, which sensationalized civilian casualties and in some cases misidentified fallen insurgents as civilians. Arabic media often used incendiary language designed to influence opinions in the Arab world, comparing coalition, quote, occupiers, end quote, to the Israeli troops in Palestinian territories and describing Blackwater security contractors as, quote, mercenaries, end quote. Cable television channel Al Jazeera claimed 600 civilians had been killed and filled its broadcasts with images of dead children at the Fallujah Hospital and other locations within the city. Al Jazeera's broadcasts so stung U.S. national leaders that they considered withdrawing all U.S. forces, including CENTCOM's forward headquarters, from Qatar if its government did not do more to, quote, bring Al Jazeera under control, end quote. With little time to prepare for the mission, MNFW had not embedded Western journalists with first MEF forces, so that the critical ground of information operations was effectively ceded to an insurgency that could distribute a one-sided message. Worse, the haste with which the operation was executed precluded the opportunity to evacuate the city of civilians properly, essentially ensuring that the insurgency had the opportunity to exploit footage of civilian casualties. The ensuing situation created severe pressure on the already fragile Iraqi and international support for the coalition. With some of its members threatening resignation, the Iraqi Governing Council demanded that CJTF-7 terminate the Fallujah operation. UN Rep. Lakhdar Brahimi also threatened to quit if the coalition did not halt the operation. The concern that coalition actions in Fallujah could potentially disintegrate the Iraqi Governing Council permeated discussions between the CPA and CJTF-7, and worries mounted about the catastrophic effect the battle could have on the planned transfer of sovereignty timeline. The possibility of such a disintegration was made more real by Iraqi Interior Minister Nouri Badran's sudden resignation and Sunni politician Mossein Abdul Hamid's suspension of participation in the Governing Council. During a meeting the evening of April 8th, Bremer worried that, quote, "...the fragile governing framework of Iraq may be in some jeopardy. If several major jump ships follow Badran's exit today, it could launch a veritable avalanche of resignations." By the next morning, April 9th, Bremer had come to support an Iraqi Governing Council proposal for a ceasefire and called Sanchez to discuss options of how one could be implemented. A senior CJTF-7 aide noted in a memo to Sanchez that for Bremer, quote, holding together the IGC is critically important. The follow-on interim government plans depend on expanding the IGC, which you cannot do if you have no IGC left, End quote. Having touched off a political firestorm and suffering a strategic communications defeat, the CPA and CJTF-7 announced a unilateral ceasefire in Fallujah later that day just three days after combat operations had begun. The decision infuriated Mattis, commander of the 1st Marine Division, which was conducting Operation Vigilant Resolve in Fallujah. When informed of the decision, he responded that it was, quote, not time to get weak in the knees, and that, if you set out to take Vienna, you take Vienna, end quote. Despite Mattis's protests, MNFW had no choice but to withdraw its units to the city's edge, keeping Fallujah in a state of siege while the Iraqi factions began negotiations to defuse the crisis. By the time fighting subsided, 18 Marines had been killed and another 96 wounded. First MEF estimated that 600 to 700 insurgents had been killed in the intense fighting, which included more than 150 airstrikes. End of Chapter 12, Part 1 Things Fall Apart, April 2004 Read by Adam Cable, Milwaukee, Wisconsin, 2021